sci-fi rant table i'm john cronshaw i'm shane thomas and our guest today is dr wesley Britton, and our topic is blind authors and characters i'm dr wesley Britton. um as, as you mentioned that blind authors uh, i have a disease called retinitis pigmentosa that's hereditary and progressive and um it kind of hit me in my mid-20s when i was going to college as a matter of fact about 20 years ago, it just disappeared off the radar screen. So I use um, speech software called JAWS to be able to do just about everything that I do creatively. As a writer, I've been writing since the mid-80s. Back in those days, I was earning my MA and my PhD. So all my writing for the first two decades, the 80s and the 90s, uh, there's a lot of nonfiction, uh, scholarly articles, essays, book reviews, that kind of stuff until the early 2000s when I put out four nonfiction books that were uh, about fictional espionage, two on spy TV shows, one on spy movies, one on five books and movies. And then about 2015 or so, I started putting out my Beta Earth Chronicle series, uh, which is science fiction. And there are six novels so far, one collected set of short stories, this year, I'm keeping working on short stories because that's given me possibilities and places to go I hadn't thought of before. It is a great opportunity to branch out from what you normally do. Our fellow knight, Rick Ty, had uh, quite a few questions. And so uh, yeah. we'll, we'll start Thank the you, conversation Rick. going right down the list. Um, so I, I guess you already covered this. He asked if you were blind from birth. Uh, his second question was, do you have some sight uh, such as light or dark? or, or- Not anymore. Because it was a progressive disease, so for years, different stages. At first, it was kind of color blindness. What hit night blindness was the first big change. And uh, then tunnel vision, because uh, RP eats around the retina of the uh, eye in stages and clumps um, until, well, about 2000, when I moved back from Texas to Pennsylvania. It was, it was all over then. I had some light perception for a while, and I guess it's, I still got light perception. You can't cause it sight. I don't really, it has to be bright sunlight. I wouldn't know if a room light was turned on or off. In fact, that people have talked about walking past my house. It's always dark up there. There's never any lights on. That's true. <laughs> Might as well save the money. <laughs> Yeah, I've got the same condition, actually, as Wesley, and um, I'm at the tunnel vision stage. Basically, my left eye is completely useless now. It's a bit like looking through frosted glass, and I've got yeah. tunnel vision in my right eye. So, yeah, it, it went the same with me, like the uh, kind of colour stuff, and then the night blindness. That I, I think it was when I noticed the night blindness, and, you know, I was out with my friends, everyone else could see, and I was the one walking in stuff, and, you know, that's when I thought, oh, okay, I've probably got what my granddad's got, <laughs> Yeah, so it's the same condition for me. Now, do you use the program he mentioned, uh, JAWS, as well? Sure. I don't use JAWS. I use one called Zoom Text. Um, okay, you can still see the screen then. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's got some speechy elements to it that I use. But, yeah, I'm still on that. And um, I did use one called Supernova for a while, but didn't like that as much as Zoom Text. So went back to Zoom Text. Now, would you mind explaining how those programs work, guys? Well, JAWS is kind of difficult to explain. What it does is if I sit here and I start typing, it'll read it back to me. It depends on how you set it up. It'll read it to you word by word, letter by letter, 
whatever you like. I leave in all the punctuation marks, lots of other people take them out in terms of being read aloud. But as a writer, I need to know where the commas and semicolons are. Email comes in and I just press a button and they'll read it back to me. So you have a you have a keyboard, I'm guessing, with Braille to yes. interact with it as well. Is it, uh, does it speak with you as well? Are you able to give voice commands? I don't really have much Braille. I have a few key keys Braille so I can find enter and tab and F4 and F12 really quickly in different places. But the rest of the keyboard is pretty normal. I'm a really good typist and I have been for years. So when I you know, started working with you know, Distal's laptop, I didn't have any problems with the typing. Zoom text is more for people who've got a bit of vision, but it's, yeah. um, you can do things like put color overlays over your screen and zoom in on particular bits. And my mouse cursor probably takes up about, I don't know, maybe about a quarter of my screen, you know, <laughs> so I can see where it is because otherwise I just lose it. Okay, um, so your program's more of a, a visual aid since you I still have some ability. Yeah, yeah, and it does have a reader on it as well if I want it, so I can turn it on and off when I'm, you know, when I'm getting stuff like reading my stuff that I've written back to me and things like that. But, I mean, for me, I do most of my writing on um, Dragon, so I dictate into a dictaphone and then transcribe it through the software. So yeah. Oh, you can do that? Yeah, Dragon's great. Dragon 15 Professional's got a thing where you can actually record audio on a dictaphone and then it processes it into about, I don't know, I've trained it now, so it's about 98, 99% accurate. So it's brilliant. I could just talk all day and then all of a sudden I've written 7,000 words or something like that. Oh, it only works with one voice though, right? Yeah, it's crap if you've got a conversation going doesn't know what to do with it but yeah if you've got one voice yeah. on it it's yeah that's really my cool. problem because for seven years i was co-host of an online radio show and i did a lot of interviews with mostly celebrities of baby boomer vintage members of the grassroots and the buckinghams and ed asner and patty duke and stuff like that and i have them all and i would love to put them into text form but i don't want to pay the big fees that people charge to convert um speech to text yeah, that's the trouble. It's the trouble. It's not. It's not there yet, unfortunately. But um, no. I'm sure, it will be sooner or later. I had always imagined uh, someone visually impaired using a, a, a speech to text, uh, like the program Dragon he mentioned. Um, it's pretty impressive to think that you can type without being able to see the keys. But once I've been thinking about it, I actually do my typing without looking at the keys most of the time. Uh huh. Yeah. The most good type is don't look at the keyboard. You, I, I guess I just assumed because I looked down and I could see the letters printed on them that I'm looking at them while I'm typing, but that's not the case. Uh, let's see. Rick had a couple more questions here. Um, yeah. Do you have a genre you most like to work in, and do you think blindness plays any part? Well, I've been writing in a lot of genres over the decades. Like I said, for a long time, it was mostly nonfiction. And back in those days when I was getting my graduate degrees, it was all about American literature. That's what my PhD is in, is American literature. So I used to write a lot about, well, Mark Twain in particular. He was my specialty. So I'd throw in Edgar Allan Poe and Nathaniel Hawthorne and you know stuff like that. And then as time goes by, I write book reviews on all kinds of things. Rock and roll. I'm a rock and roll drummer, too. Um, I like a wide range of things. Science fiction kind of came out of nowhere. I've always read science fiction. One of his questions was about favorite authors. And I'd say for sci-fi, for me, that's still Frank Herbert. To me, he's still the master. Uh, but there's so many others. But science fiction kind of came to me when I was in my office when I was teaching. 
And this idea came to me is what would happen to a blind person who suddenly finds themselves zapped over to an alternate universe where they, well, they weren't blind before they went, but they're blinded in the capture. And on the other side, they can't see anything. They can't understand anything because everybody over there talks in a different language and has a different vocabulary. And he doesn't have a clue in the world. How would he fare? How would he survive? And that's what kicked off the Beta Earth Chronicles. So it starts off very sci-fi. Lately, I've been kind of branching out with the Beta Earth concept into a lot of thrillers, which takes me back to my spy days and um, mystery stories. And I've got some other ideas in my branch out in different directions. All right. Is, is that the short stories you mentioned? Yes. Great. Okay. So now your series is at four sequential novels, and and then there's a couple short story collections to go with it. Well, there's six sequential novels, or five. Well, the first four are all set on Beta Earth, and the fifth one is set on Serapin Earth, where I take some of the main characters and send them over to yet another planet. And um, then in book six, it's the next generation because I figure the forty years that the first. Beta Earth Chronicles books cover. You know, they're not done. Leave them alone. You've tortured Malcolm enough. <laughs> and then book six is the next generation. And then the short stories pick up with that set of the second generation. So I decided to do another series of short stories that um, goes back to the Almond War that happens in the background in books three and a bit in book four. We don't see it happening. We're not involved with it. So I'd say, oh, you can use this uh, Elman War. You got some stories there that you've never told, characters you've never used. So it gave me a different playground. The short stories I'm working on, there's others. In book six, when I sent the children of Malcolm Redborn, or some of them, to our planet 40 years in the future, I had a character named Mary Carpenter, who is a uh, kind of a secret agent investigating officer, very involved in them. And then I thought, well, what happens if you would have her stories before she meets the alien? What kinds of stuff would she deal with in terms of terrorists and white supremacists and all kinds of other plots? You know, you know, I have now that whole mystery thing going. So it's a hodgepodge of different uh, storylines. You know, that's the nice thing about uh, speculative fiction, science fiction, fantasy, uh, horror, is that you can put another genre right in over top. Such as mystery or thriller or romance. Me too, yeah. Uh, John, do you feel like your uh, blindness plays any factor in the genre that you write into? The first kind of proper short story I ever finished was a steampunk story about a woman whose husband had invented a helmet for her and left it when he died that gave her sight. And it was like this kind of massive kind of steampunk H.G. Wells kind of story. That was pretty good, and it was just about her getting a lot of crap for wearing a stupid helmet around, uh, you know, Victorian London and stuff. Wow, it uh, sounds like Jordi LaForge in the Victorian era. Yeah, oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> it's a fair assessment. And then um, my post-apocalyptic series just doesn't have anything to do with it at all, and neither does my fantasy series, but I did write a, a sci-fi game-lit kind of novel, so it's set in a game world i'll say it's a bit like you know ready player one kind of setup where it's set half in a video game and then the other half is set in the real world and it's about a teenage lad who's coming to terms with going blind and he has to kind of learn how to get around the world so that's the kind of real world story 
and then in the game world he's he's able to see the video games because he's got this thing called a b chip which is basically you know he can't see the real world but he can see virtual worlds using this chip and because he's got this chip he's basically immune to this thing that this hacker uses in to destroy the game but he's also the worst player in the game so it's kind of <laughs> <laughs> playing on that it's like he could you know he sucks as a player he's, he's terrible so he's got to go on this kind of hero's journey to well that it really reminds me of uh you know, when you see somebody super powered fighting in a movie and they're beating everyone, but their martial art ability is horrible. Like uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, wow, if if you trained and you had all this ability, it would be a whole, you know, this whole huge thing. Instead, you're just kind of a super powered blundering through it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and you think you think that anyone that's got even a modicum of training would be able to take them out straight away as well. Uh, you know? Yeah, and they always fight just the regular assassin or or some uh, you know super trained guy, and that person gets kind of close to beating them. And you got to think, well, gee, wouldn't that be a warning sign that superpowers alone aren't enough? You also need to, <laughs> you can all train to be like Batman or Daredevil. You don't, you know, just because you have a power doesn't mean you can't be good at anything else. Oh, so my whole trajectory is completely different. He's nothing super powered about Malcolm Redburn. He's scared to death. Um, oh yeah, in terms of blindness, something else that kind of forced me to do in the first book, and I kept it up for the first five, is he couldn't be the primary narrator because he can't see what's going on around him. So I had to start bringing in other voices. So all these other characters for whom Beta World is their home planet. They could describe meeting Malcolm and experiencing him. And ultimately, you know, it's a polygamous planet, so he ends up with these various wives. So they all tell their own stories mixed in with his. And his perspective is going to be very different because he's from a different planet to begin with, different culture, adapting to all that, plus the blindness aspect of it. But the other ones are dealing with dealing with his blindness. Plus, I have another blind character. Um, so I wanted to have the juxtaposition. He was... Oh, say 30-something when he lost his sight. But I have a beta woman who is blind from birth. And people who are blind from birth have a very different concept of blindness than those of us who got sucked with it later on in life. Like for me, I had a huge identity change when it you know, started whamming me in the mid-20s. And for my friends, too, who Wesley Britton was before the blindness kicked in is very different than the Wesley Britton thereafter. Did you have that experience, John? Yeah, I'd say so. Yeah, <laughs> it's um, yeah. It's, I mean, this this is. I think this is one of the reasons why I wanted to write Blind Gambit because it's like, I don't, I don't think that that particular aspect of it has has been explored much in stories. That there is a shift, and it's like, you, I think it's almost like the um, the same kind of process you go through with grieving. Yes. Like this kind of yes. anger and, and denial, and you know, you think oh, bargaining, and you know, you try and think, oh, is, is there some miracle therapies and you go you go through all that and it's and then you yeah, accept huh? it and i don't know it does change and it kind of shifts your friends and i don't know it's really yes. it's really strange because it, it does say a lot about the other people around you about how they are with you and how they react like one thing that i deal with a lot in the book is just the you've probably dealt with this yourself of just the kind of well-meaning people oh my, uh... who were overprotective and patronizing and just getting your face and you're just like, just leave me alone. I'll be fine, you know. So I, I tried to deal with that as well in the book. And 
I've actually written it from the perspective of someone who's completely lost their sight and it's written in first person. So there's no visual descriptions at all mm. during the stuff that's in the real world. It's all sent, you know, it's all the kind of how you'd go about sensing things, things like counting curbs and, you know, all that, all those kind of auditory and kind of spatial cues that you feel when you're mm. out and about. So it's kind of taking that into account. Sounds like I need a PDF of this book of yours. <laughs> yeah, I could, I could sort you out a mobile or whatever. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, I need to get an audio book done of it, but I'm writing the second one now. So I want to do a kind of bundle of books one and two for the audio book because it, I think it'll probably come up, but like it's a 55,000 word, maybe 60,000 word novel. So it's going to come up quite short as an audio book. So are you going to record pack. your own book, John? No. <laughs> that would be wild. Yeah. I've done, I have done that before. I did that with a non-fiction book and oh, that was that was no fun though. I've promised myself never again, but I don't know. I've said never again on a few things like that and I've just done them. Cause... <laughs> I, I got a microphone and headphones set up uh, because I was considering doing that and I did some of my short stories and then I thought about doing some of the novels and I decided definitely not. I'd rather... Uh, spend my time as a writer writing than, than reading out loud. Yeah. ACX does a, um, a royalty split thing with narrators, which I did for my mm-hmm. Wasteland series. So I've got audiobooks for that that are really good. So Oh, great. Yeah. Do you, uh, both of you listen to a lot of audiobooks? I know I do because I drive a lot. Yeah. yeah. Hey, so are you guys in the States or are you in England? I'm in the U.S. and he's in England. Oh, okay. That's what I was wondering. Yeah, here in the States, we've got the Library of Congress BARD program where they have 8 million books. I don't know. I just made that number up that you can download. And I have a little device that's called a Humanware Stream. And you can download those books into it and read it on that stream. And I carry that little thing everywhere I go. I'm constantly reading just in. So that will convert, uh, that'll convert the text file into uh, a synthetic voice? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I have an app on my phone that does the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. So when when I'm not listening to something on Audible, I'll I'll plug in. It's called uh, eReader Prestigio or Prestigio, and uh, you just put an MOBI file in it, and you can hit the little there's a little speaker icon and click it, and then it reads to you. Sounds like the GPS lady. (laughs) Yeah. No, I didn't know about that until he suggested it. Actually, so I've been (laughs) listening to a lot of books. couldn't get an audio because I, I listen to a lot of audio books and in the UK we've got the Royal National Institute for the Blind Library so they have a lot of audio books um, so yeah it's like having audible book for free for blind awesome. people so uh, plus I do a lot of book reviews so if I, I mentioned PDFs earlier so I have a lot of people send me as PDFs because I can convert them into text files I can put on my streams yeah how many do you do a year oh golly I couldn't answer that Sure. Yeah, I think in uh, 2016 was my biggest year. I I think I got about 60 that year. And then 18 was a little less. I think I finished at uh, 30 or 40. And then so far this year, I'm at 20. About the halfway point. Yeah. (laughs) I only know because I set my Goodreads goal. (laughs) Yeah, and podcasts as well. I listen to a lot of podcasts. So it's, uh, yeah. Is it mostly fiction? For me. 
Uh, I listen to a lot of, I listen to quite a few fiction podcasts actually. There's some really good ones out there. Um, really like the other stories. And Lightspeed Magazine is a really good SF one. And Clark's World as well, I don't know if you know them. I used to listen to podcasts quite a bit. I think that was the year my book reviews took the slump. <laughs> it was uh, a, a lot of Joe Rogan experience. And then uh, Tim Ferriss does kind of uh, like oh, yeah, 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 self improvement type of stuff. Yeah, yeah, no, that's good. Yeah, and uh, listen to a lot of Kevin Smith some stuff. That was mostly just humor and uh, more or less reminiscing on his uh, movie career. He's still he's still some good films actually. I really liked his um, what was it more rats? That was classic back in the day and clones. Oh sure, there. yeah, yeah. I you know I even enjoyed his uh, more recent stuff. There was one with his daughter and Johnny Depp's daughter, and they're at a gas station in Canada. That was uh, that was a funny one, and uh, I got to say, the one called Tusk was really disturbing. Yeah, I've not seen that one. <laughs> yeah, if uh, if you want to be creeped out, it would it would be the one to go to. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> you guys watch a lot of uh, movies for the blind, where they have sort of a, a narration. I love the headphones where you put them over your ears and you know, they'll read an audio description. Oh, fact, at a at a movie theater. Yeah. Oh, great. Okay. I, I wrote a blog post about that last year, I guess it was. My grandson and I went to a movie he had he liked, and I happened to think about the fact that as I was listening to that narrator, that narrator was doing what, what all authors should do. She was talking about the wind blowing through the curtains and the candles on the tables and all of these different things that I would never have known to sit there as a blind person. But then I thought, well, that's what writers do. We've got to take these places that these uh, readers don't see, they don't know what's going on, and put it all into some kind of sensory imagery. And so that's me as a writer, I'm doing what that uh, narrator was doing. Yeah, and I would recommend that for even non-visually impaired people, if you're going to watch Interstellar, do it with the closed caption (laughs) descriptions on, because it makes a lot more sense. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, most of that. Mine and Jenny's TV time is after the kids' bedtime, so if we're going to watch a movie, it's usually with the captions on. That way we don't have to have it too loud. (laughs) The audio description stuff, I think Netflix do quite a lot of their stuff now has that. Oh, great. A long time ago, I worked at a video store, and we had a section for those, and I used to like to put on uh, Star Wars with with the description. (laughs) Hmm. Yeah, that would be good to hear. Especially the newer ones, because I have no idea what's going on. Since there's a lot of visual stuff there, having a narrative aid would be a good help. Yeah, because hardly a lot of these days, most of the movies, especially sci-fi movies, are real special effects, visually oriented, and totally lost on me. I need character. <laughs> yeah, dialogue. Yes. Yep. Descriptions. Yep. Let's uh, go back to the Rick Ty list and see if we have any more of his questions we haven't talked about. Oh, quite a few, I think. <laughs> writing stuff like about characters uh what is your most useful factor when building a character when do you know you're onto something in the first of the uh well the first well i guess now think about all of the first book of the Vader chronicles most of my characters were created because they had a purpose there's something i wanted them to be something that i wanted them to do especially like in the blind alien the first of them those are the most of the main characters that appear there. Most of them are intended to represent different social classes, different social stratas, different cultures, different ways of seeing the world. So my starting point was okay, let's put this person 
is a slave in Balakin. And these women are farm women in Razvi, and they're outcasts. You know, virtually everybody that gets involved with Malcolm is an outcast or an exile of one way or another. And so I start with that. Where it goes from there, I often say these women invented themselves. But who are they based on? Well, they're not really based on anybody. They're based on who they are. Um, I have a little descriptive thing to start with because Jolin, I had Princess die in mind because I knew that I, wanted, I, I needed to keep my characters always in jeopardy, always under pressure of some kind. And I thought, well, let's throw in the paparazzi. And if I think of the paparazzi, why do you think of Princess Di? So the character of Jolin looks like her. That's about it. That's the only similarity they have. But, you know, that's just something, a point to start with. And then from that point on, they honestly created themselves. I can't think of a better way to put it. Yeah, it sounds like you uh, focus the plot on characterization and just yeah. kind of come to life. Yes. Well, what are your thoughts on artificial or augmented senses? I don't do a lot with that, not until book three when we have the mutant um, Suspiria. And a new storyline kind of kicks in when she's got that. Um, but my science fiction is a lot of ways not traditional because it's a different world, yes. Different cultures, yes. But this, there's no spaceships running around. The robots are pretty primitive stuff. Um, no exotic weaponry. It's all about people and their interactions, how they deal with the pressures that the world throws at them. And genetics is a big thing that's going on. Um, there's not a lot of, I don't have any super people, very few until Suspiria and her sons got enhanced powers, but it's not a dominant thing. If that's what the question's asking, that makes sense. Sure. Yep. Um, how important is sound in your work? And uh, how about speech inflection? And uh, do you really go out of your way to uh, write that in? Yeah. As a matter of fact, one of the big things I really worked hard on in the first four books is I really wanted to have all of the main characters. It's based on like an oral history. Like, I don't know if you read the Beatles anthology or books like that about rock bands where one person tells part of the story and somebody else picks up the tale and then somebody else, and then they go back around. And that happens in my book. Now, for Malcolm, he talks like we do because he's from our planet. But all the others have what I call beta speak. Um, they try to create a language and a uh, dialect that is very readable, understandable, um, very much with the active verbs instead of, I understood that. Underst oh, do you understand? It would say, understand you. Make a really active voice kind of um, structure. Um, and then I even there, I tried to break it up a bit. The more educated characters uh, talk in a certain way and the less educated characters like the farm women talk in different ways. So I, I put a lot of effort into that into the first four books and then threw all that in book five. <laughs> <laughs> his, uh, his next question is kind of a good follow-up. Uh, do you have a preference between writing dialogue and writing description? Yeah, dialogue. I prefer description is a pain in the ass. <laughs> I'm with you. <laughs> the one yeah. advantage to writing about a different planet is I don't have to make it fit a lot of, you know, our reality. But that's one thing that kind of struck me when I started writing about the kids going over 40 years in the future and they're going around from Jamaica to the middle of the U.S. somewhere and then 
up into uh, British Columbia, all of a sudden they had to start making the descriptions fit um, what we know, what what our planet is like. So all of a sudden research started coming into play. So I had to start doing a lot more description based on reading what I was reading, as opposed to like, you know, on different planets, you can mess around a lot. Oh, yeah. I have kind of that, what my more recent books is an urban fantasy. And so I spent a lot of time kind of looking, looking at things on Google Maps and it's places uh-huh. I've been, uh, but I wanted to confirm things like restaurant names and, and street. Uh-huh. So I spent a lot of time, you know, making sure I was writing about where I said I was writing about. And that's something you don't have to do if you've invented another world. Yeah, that's right. Well, the only leisure, well, aspect of that is that I, it's 40 years in the future after climate change and after plagues have hit the planet. So a lot of things have changed. But you still, if you're going to talk about an island that's an actual island, you got to try to use aspects of it that are real. So I've asked a lot of questions and done a lot of you know research in different ways to give it believability. Hmm. Yeah. When when I write my um, first drafts, they're basically just dialogue, dialogue. They're, they're basically like messy screenplays. So I don't <laughs> tend to do description that comes later. That's like my second draft stuff. So writing around the dialogue, voice, dialogue and voice first, definitely. Okay, so you, you're writing layers, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, it's, really, it's probably like a really bad way of doing it. It's probably really inefficient. But yeah, I'll literally do the dialogue and then descriptions and then, yeah, just kind of building it up like, a, I don't know, I suppose it's like, you know, you build like sculptures with clay and you build up and you build up and then you start putting in the details of the shape, but you're mm-hmm. kind of huh. building it first. So. For me, yeah. it always seems to come like people normally when they're talking to somebody else, it's because they're also doing something. So I try to describe what they're doing while they're having their conversation or, you know, maybe they're talking on the way to action. You know, I think that's how it kind of comes out for me. Yeah. I think, I think it's maybe reading a lot of epic fantasy where I just think description gets in the way of the story. So (laughs) I have to add more. I had to be, that's one thing editors have really urged on me over the years is, you got to have more description. You got to have people being able to see what's going on, and that was absolutely a weak spot that I've had to work on. Would you suppose it's because of uh, blindness that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, plus I have to. The book's description bogs it down. Hmm. I give a damn what the castle looks like. Get in the castle and get have a fight. <laughs> I love I love Robert Jordan in the Wheel of Time, but it was sometimes very tiresome to know that the Trollocs were attacking outside, but we're going to spend the next three and a half pages on the squire's outfit. (laughs) (laughs) Where's the fight, Robert? (laughs) Find that with the Robin Hobbs Mad Ship series. I couldn't get through that. I mean, I really like the, what was it, the assassin stuff. She'd have about five lines just to describe the turn of someone's hand and just get to the story, please. <laughs> one thing that drove me crazy with one editor was that he wanted more and more description of characters who would appear in the story for maybe a paragraph. Oh, no. <laughs> is what they look like. They're going to say three lines and go off into oblivion. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think what descriptions for secondary characters, if they're not useful, is like he was wearing a gray hat. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that'll do. That'll do. <laughs> uh do you guys think blindness has had an impact on your imagination? Yeah, well, I don't know how to qualify or quantify that. It must because it affects every aspect of my life, except to say all women are good looking to me. <laughs> <laughs> 
uh, you're going to do just fine in life. <laughs> so, kind of rolling, for yeah. every gal, you'll do just fine. Uh, you know, I think about my own imagination, and I know a lot of people will describe imagining things vividly and in picture, but I really don't see pictures that much. Would you say it's the same for you, or is it a pretty vivid image? Depends on what you're talking about. I have, because, I, well, one of the differences between me and somebody who is born blind is I have memories of how of, things look. Of sight, right, yeah. So I can go back in my head and remember people and places and, and things from my childhood up until about in the mid-20s and my early years in Texas. So I have pictures like that. I also think there's a lot of movies that I can remember and TV shows have a kind of a gauge of how I was going blind because I could see them in the theaters up until 77 when The Spy Who Loved Me came out. I had no idea what was happening on screen when that one came out. But I could watch, if I sat up close to the TV, I could watch movies until tomorrow never dies. And that was the last movie I was able to stare at a TV screen and be able to see it. Um, so it's, you know, it's kind of depends on what period of my life I'm looking back to to draw from. It seems like, you know, you can remember images, but maybe now you don't imagine in images. Uh, not really. Now that I think about it, I just, I really thought about it, to be honest. I, yeah. You know, most of my imagination is just a dialogue. It's uh, myself kind of in the back of my own head spitting out uh, almost like a rough draft of, but just, you know, stream of consciousness kind of whatever thought I'm having, I suppose. It was weird for me. Because my publicist is constantly bugging me to come up with images for covers as we create a couple of books and short stories. And went, geez, Lord, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> be too busy, okay? Can't be too busy. So what can it be? I, 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 uh, it's a weird one for me. Yeah, I think mine, mine sounds like a cross between the both of you because my imagination is primarily visual. So I know with my Ravenglass books, like I can picture the palace, I can picture how it's laid out. All the towns, all the cities, I don't draw maps or anything. I just know what they look like and know how they're set out. That's all held in my head. And same with my other books as well. I still know how all the other places are set out because I've just pictured them, you know, kind of almost meditated on what they look like. And then, yeah, always having that kind of constant voice going, rehearsing almost in the back of my head how the story's going to go. And, mm. yeah, I find that when I'm just get distracted or whatever it's there kind of in the background i like that word rehearsal because that is a lot of the drafting process you're rehearsing what's going to end up on the page even a lot of your own just consciousness and ideas it's often reinforcing certain ideas that share a value or like resonate with you it's you'll find yourself thinking about the same thing over and over as days and weeks yeah. and years go on and that's a bit of a rehearsal for you to kind of calibrate yourself and your you know your ever-changing value system yeah yeah i'm gonna remember that word that was a good one thanks john <laughs> okay uh well geez uh, we got through all of rick's questions that he was kind enough to volunteer and it took us pretty interesting places in conversation wesley is there, is there anything else you want to share well i would have told well uh, i guess you got all the links so people can go to find things right Oh, sure. Yeah. Do you want to call out your uh, your main website or, or anything? Well, my main website is www.drwesleybritton.com. Great. Yeah. And everything else you provided uh, will be available in the show notes. So they'll be able to follow you to uh, Facebook and, and wherever else you'd like to direct them. I'd say this year, folks, check out the short stories. There's 
he said two different threads. One of the Mary Carpenter mysteries that are 40 years in the future. There's one, two, three of them so far. This was at four. And there are two Almond War storylines going right now. I'm getting better at some things. <laughs> at least I like to think so. In the Mary Carpenter series, the one I just had, the A Day in the Death of the Magic Mapple, I think it was really quite good. And then the Almond War one, I think the um, Alien Who Never Was story is pretty good. You should be able to get them for free at Kindle Unlimited um, and Kindle Select and all that. So um, you can get introduced to um, standalone stories if you want to go that way. And we're going to be revising The Blind Alien. We've been wanting to do that for a long time. So there's stuff happening all the time. You know, you got to sign up for my newsletter. If you uh, got the link at the profile, you'll know what's going on every once a month. Great. So sign up for uh, Dr. Britton's email newsletter, and then he'll keep you updated as his projects are posted and, and or uh, revised. Uh, mm-hmm. Don't forget to go on Facebook and check out the uh, Sci-Fi Roundtable. And uh, oh, yeah, wonderful. I love that page. You guys came out of nowhere a couple of years ago, it seems like, and you're kind of the hub for... A lot of sci-fi writers now. It's, yeah, it is definitely the water cooler for science fiction and fantasy authors. If you're yeah. just a reader, we have a reading group that directs you to a lot of our work that you can get for free and also our reviews of one another's works. And that's mm-hmm. reading the roundtable of science fiction and fantasy. If you want to catch up with me, my website is the Science Fantasy Hub. It covers me both nerding out on books and writing them. John, where can we reach you? Yeah, uh, johncronshaw.com. That's where I post short stories. I've also got my author diary podcast, if you just look for John Cronshaw's author diary. And I've been talking about my book, Blind Gambit, which is a game-lit novel. It's about coming to terms with going blind. And it's also a fun adventure with lots of geeky references. So Yeah, after this talk, and uh, since I already love Ready Player One, it sounds like uh, it needs to hit my TBR for sure. Dr. Britton, thanks so much for joining us. It was really well, enlightening. Thanks for having me. Uh, both of you guys have already gone through something that I've always personally been afraid of. So I commend you. Uh, you're brave to continue doing things and pursuing your hobbies and your dreams. Thanks so much for keeping at it. I'm sure all your fans appreciate it. Don't be afraid to talk to visually impaired people about their condition because it's better to learn and not do the thing of oh it's the magic blind man you know that kind of trope (laughs) so yeah just if anyone listening to this is an author who wants to speak to me about dealing with visual impairment and how you don't have to be afraid to ask yeah yeah, there is a spectrum as we've seen you know i'm I'm at a different Mm -hmm. stage than wesley is so yeah do do reach out because it should be something that more writers deal with and um you know it's part of this more diversity in fiction but doing it in a way that's not cheesy and tropey so thanks that's that's big and he's on the sci-fi roundtable guys so uh look for john cronshaw there if you want to kind of deepen your own writing game and and really accurately describe a blind character he's here to help so thanks john um for joining dr west uh And you guys have a good night. This was a fun chat. Yeah, thank you. I enjoyed it. Take care.